Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 40 million people across seven states rely on the Colorado River. 19 million are in California, which takes the largest share from the mighty waterway. But the river has been shrinking fast, and the seven states haven't been able to agree on how they should reduce the amounts they take. So now it looks like the federal government will have to step in. Farmers in the Imperial Valley, the Salton Sea, and cities like Los Angeles and San Diego need Colorado River water. We take a closer look at what drastic water cuts could mean after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Colorado River is drying, and California and six other states, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Wyoming, were supposed to send the federal government last week their plan to significantly reduce the amount of water they take from the river, but they didn't. Instead, six states agreed to a plan that would make major cuts from California's allocation. California countered with a plan that would see far less reductions here and put more pain across other states first citing senior water rights. So what happens now? Janet Wilson is here. Janet is senior environment reporter for the Desert Sun. Welcome to Forum. Thank you. First, just to back up a little bit, how bad a shape is the Colorado River in and its major reservoirs like Powell and Lake Mead? Very, very bad shape. Um, yeah. Uh, the two major reservoirs you mentioned are each about a quarter full, and they're sinking fast to unprecedented low levels, uh, which uh, could mean that they reach a state where no power can be generated uh, from the Hoover Dam, and also that they reach Deadpool, one of those colorful water terms where they wouldn't even be able to send the drinking water and irrigation water down through the uh, dams, tunnels, and pipes to get it to the seven states. Wow. So what has the federal government asked the seven states to do? So the federal government uh, last year uh, said, this is serious, this is real, and you need to cut between two to four million acre feet of water by next year. And typically uh, coming up with these multi-state agreements can take years. So uh, uh, Camille Tootin, the head of uh, reclamation, the Bureau of Reclamation said, you need to do it within a year or we will do it for you. So they um, have given them lots of time to try and come up with plans, but the feds are also researching their own uh, rights and, um, you know, coming up with a plan by as early as March, sometime this spring, to make sure that when we hit the uh, dry season and when they allocate water in August for next year, there will be a real plan to cope with what's going on. 
Right. And just to give our listeners a sense of how much water is in an acre feet, it's an acre foot of water that's enough to cover an acre of land in a foot of water, roughly, as I understand it, as much as two households use in a year. So when we're talking two to four million, it's a lot of water, uh, which is why. Yes, Yes. it's billions and billions of gallons of water. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's understandable why these states can't agree. And so now we've got two different proposals emerging, one that six states have signed on to and one that California has proposed, obviously not one of the six states. So first, what did the six states say, Janet? So the six states uh, proposed that um, two things. One, that there be cuts apportioned across all of the states. Uh, well, actually, the lower basin states, as they're known, Arizona, Nevada, and California, who um, have the legal rights and contracts with the federal government for the water. There could be some separate agreements with the uh, upper basin states. But anyway, they spread the pain, uh, and a lot of it would be on California as the largest state, which receives 4.4 million acre-feet of the 7.5 million acre-feet that is allocated each year. Um, So... uh, They also said that, and the feds uh, first said this last summer, that they've never accounted for the huge evaporation uh, in these um, reservoirs because they're located in hot, sunny areas. And they've also never accounted for the seepage that occurs on these sometimes hundreds of miles long open pipelines and and aqueducts to get the water to the places where it's needed. So uh, the water manager in Nevada proposed that up to almost 1.6 million acre feet could uh, be saved by uh, not giving um, the water districts, the contractors, extra water each time they place an order to make up for the evaporation and the seepage. California's uh, Colorado River Commissioner, new Colorado River Commissioner, said a firm no to that proposal. Uh, So anyway, that's the two major pieces of the six-state proposal. Apportion the cuts out based on size, so California would get hit the hardest, but Arizona would also get hit hard, and Arizona has already made pretty big cuts last year, as has California over the years. So if California is rejecting this proposal, what is California proposing? So California is proposing that basically something known as the law of the river be followed, which is that first in time, if you got there first and got the rights to the Colorado River water, then you're first in line for the deliveries. Now, in California, that would leave uh, the Metropolitan Water District, district which provides water for urban areas across Southern California, LA, San Diego, others in the lurch also potentially, but they have all agreed on this proposal, which basically favors the longtime farmers who provide most of the winter crops for the United States. They first turned these hot, dry desert areas into very productive farmland more than a century ago, and they've got the oldest rights under the law of the river. So California's plan preserves those unless both plans rely on a series of triggers. 
if Lake Mead drops to, you know, below a certain amount, it triggers more cuts. If it drops again to a lower amount, it triggers more cuts. So if it gets down to like a th less than a thousand feet of elevation in Lake Mead, everybody's going to be feeling a lot of pain. So both plans do outline more than 3 million acre feet of cuts based on both existing drought agreements and future cuts. Hmm. So they're taking the federal government seriously. They are definitely uh, proposing serious cuts. It's just who gets hit first. We're talking with Janet Wilson, senior environment reporter for the Desert Sun. We're talking about the conflict between California and other states over their allocations of water from the Colorado River. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What do you think of how California is handling the Colorado River crisis? Uh, how do you think California should share the pain or contribute to the solution of incredibly low levels at Lake Mead and Lake Powell? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Before the show, we asked you, our listeners, to tell us where or when the presence of less water really struck you. And this listener writes, I really noticed the presence of less water when I saw Lake Powell almost drying up. Janet Wilson, what makes California so comfortable with going up against six other states, going up alone? against these six other states. Is it these senior water rights, as you were describing? Well, I think there's some um, age-old tensions and conflicts between coastal California and a lot of these inland western states, and in many areas, but a lot of that does stem from water. And uh, they have won uh, at least once in uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, when uh, a doctor treating uh, low-income migrant workers in California, in uh, the Imperial Valley, which holds by far the largest rights to water uh, in California, sued to try and get some of those rights reduced. And the U.S. Supreme Court said then, nope, absolutely not. The Imperial Irrigation District, I mean, I'm I'm definitely leaving out a lot of the finer details, but basically it preserved um, that district's water rights from the Colorado River. And Arizona versus California is another uh, Supreme Court case. And Arizona actually, in exchange for construction of a great big long aqueduct, uh, the Central Arizona Project also agreed it would have, quote, junior rights to the water. So, um, so meaning they that they would take cuts before California had to. Yes, exactly. Thank you for translating into plain English. No, no, no. <laughs> but I think yeah. what you're really getting at here is is just how much all these states rely on the Colorado River. But can you just characterize for us just how much California relies on the Colorado River? I mentioned a stat in our billboard of 19 million Californians, but just talk about how they would be impacted um, because of that reliance. Yeah, uh, the 19 million people, uh, that's the drinking water number. So 18 million uh, Californians rely on Colorado River water. You know, every suburb and city in Southern California pretty much uh, relies on that water. Um, and then you have, uh, 
you know, uh, often very poor rural areas where you do have farmers who are um, earning good livings off of the uh, crops, but also supporting uh, systems of, you know, largely migrant uh, crop workers and pickers. And so, for instance, Imperial County, which is already by many markers, the poorest county in the state of California could be devastated by these cuts, according to the new um, water commissioner for the state who also sits on the Imperial Irrigation District Board. So uh, they are definitely not top of everybody's radar, even in California, but they are the big player uh, on the river in many ways. And um, the people who live there could really be hit hard. Um, mm. That rural economy depends on the irrigation for the farming. But now with this impasse, it's really up to the feds to basically step in and impose these cuts, right? As you well, pointed out, or is there something? Well, I, I would say that, I mean, they're playing it pretty close to the best, but I would say everybody is really hoping for a consensus here rather than having to go the court route simply mm. because court cases, especially if they're going to go all the way back up to the Supreme Court, take years. And we don't have years here. Yeah. Because you know, you're got, saying the yeah. feds, whatever the feds do, will likely be challenged with legal fights. We will be talking more about the conflict over the Colorado River with Janet Wilson. After the break, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow, public speaking, with voice and dialect coach Samara Bay, who says we need to change our assumptions about what power sounds like in her new book, Permission to Speak. And we want to hear from you. Have you ever been called out for the way you speak? Tell us in a voicemail, 415-553-3300. Again, that's 415-553-3300. Today, we're taking a closer look at the impact of the drying Colorado River and what cuts could mean, especially for California. We're talking with Janet Wilson, senior environment reporter for the Desert Sun. And joining me now is Michael Cohen, senior researcher for the Pacific Institute. Michael Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And so we were talking just before the break about how Imperial Valley would be hit incredibly hard with drastic cuts to 
Colorado River allocations. Tell us why. Why is the Imperial Valley such a target for reductions and why would it be hit so hard? Well, Imperial Valley has always been a target for reductions because they're the single largest user of Colorado River water in the entire system. Um, so they walk around essentially with a big target on their backs. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that uh, Imperial Valley has already reduced their use by about 17% over the past 20 years. So additional cuts are going to be particularly painful. Mm. And that so, pain's going to come. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. The pain's going to come. Uh, in several different places. One is for the people that are actually, actually working on those farms. Um, so short-term cuts often come in the, in the form of fallowing or taking land out of production, which means the people that are working on that land lose their jobs. And then local communities that were relying on those, uh, those wages are going to see lower, uh, less money flowing into their economies. But the other thing that happens in the Imperial Valley is that efficiency or less water use translates into less water flowing into the Salton Sea which means more land is exposed and uh, salinity increases and habitat is lost for birds. So there's a public health impact because more land exposure translates into additional dust. Mm -hmm. And there's a direct habitat component. And the state of California has taken on the responsibility of, of mitigating both of those impacts. So at cost to uh, taxpayers throughout the state. So there's a real impact not just for Imperial Valley, but people throughout the state of California. Yeah, let's dig into each of those. First, I want to back up a little bit. What do they use all that water for, Michael Cohen? Uh, so essentially, it's, uh, Imperial Valley and Coachella Valley to the north of the Salt Sea, as well as Yuma across the Colorado River in Arizona, grows the winter vegetables for the country. So if you're eating lettuce or carrots right now, along with scores of other crops, odds are those are coming from that region, grown with Colorado River water, uh, and supplying food for, for people throughout the country. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, forage or field crops that are grown. So if you're eating uh, cheese on your pizza, odds are that uh, those cows are fed, uh, particularly in California or Southern California, uh, with crops grown in Imperial Valley. And uh, also alfalfa is a major crop that's grown there, correct? And that's a very water intensive crop? Right, so alfalfa is, is one of these feed crops that that supports dairy cattle uh, in particular. Um, and in fact, alfalfa throughout the Colorado River Basin as a whole uh, uses more than 25% of, of Colorado River water. So a lot of water, uh, often in the upper basin as well, uh, up in Colorado and Wyoming and uh, Utah and New Mexico goes to feed crops, crops that are uh, grown to feed animals rather than directly consumed by people. And you said that they've already reduced their water by 17%, how were they able to achieve those reductions? Um, so short-term, those reductions were achieved by fallowing, meaning, again, taking land out of production. But over the long-term, they've largely replaced that by efficiency, meaning that uh, farmers are shifting to more efficient ways to irrigate their crops, moving to sprinklers and drip irrigation, for example. Uh, a lot of canals have been lined. So uh, I think Janet was mentioning earlier that there was seepage. Um, so that, uh, that water has been captured uh, and then transferred to, to San Diego and Metropolitan, more generally on the coast. Uh, so they've become much more efficient over the years. And in fact, total irrigated land in, in production in Imperial Valley is, is on the order of 98% of what it, used, what it was 20 years ago. So uh, much more efficiency, much as we've seen in, in uh, urban communities as well. Well, I want to bring into the conversation now Tina Shields, a water department manager for the Imperial Irrigation District. Tina Shields, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So we just heard from Michael Cohen about the um, 
the various ways that the district has tried to confront what I'm sure it has seen in terms of writing on the wall, dwindling Colorado River water supplies. Is there anything else that you want to point out that, that Michael hasn't mentioned? Yes, I think uh, we've touched on a couple of the critical areas for IED, but I don't know if anybody has mentioned that the Colorado River is our community's only water supply. Hmm. So if we don't have groundwater, we don't have state water project, we don't have um, other recycling opportunities. So if we lose the Colorado River, our community has to pack up and move. That's the place that it is right now that basically they're saying you cut any more from us and we'll have to pack up and move? You know, we have a significant water right, and we do our best to be as efficient as we can. We, uh, within California, have proposed an additional 400,000 acre feet of conservation to help uh, target these declining reservoirs and protect critical elevations as we work to renegotiate the operating guidelines that are expiring. That would be another 250,000 by Imperial Irrigation District in particular, which Michael mentioned that we've already saved about 17% of our water supply. That would put us closer to 24 to 25% to benefit mm -hmm. either urban Southern California or Lake Mead in general. And that's gonna be really pressing the limits and undoubtedly there will be following involved, which is really known as the F word in our community because it's so <laughs> detrimental, not only to the Salton Sea, but to our community and to the economic repercussions that are realized here while the beneficiaries of the resources are elsewhere. So what do people in Imperial Valley think of how the state's handling this and the state's proposal right now? So I think they're all very supportive of the California proposal. Uh, what we saw proposed by the other states were disproportionately aimed at targeting California. Uh, as um, both Janet and Michael mentioned, we have very senior water rights and we made long-term investments using our partnership funding from our existing water transfers um, to, to make long-term plans. So to suddenly have a crisis on the river where folks are ignoring the law of the river and the existing agreements, compacts, legislation is very concerning to our community because they should have been planning better and determined what their long-term resource management was and made those similar investments. Um, we know it's a big cut for everyone, and I think the magnitude has been shocking to to undoubtedly everyone. Um, but certainly, we have done a lot in our community to reduce our water uses to benefit others, and we have an expectation that other folks will live up to their obligations as well. How worried are folks there about the feds coming in and essentially taking water? <laughs> There is some precedent for the feds successfully forcing the Imperial Valley to sell water to San Diego in the past, for example. Right, and they were very tough and, and not fun proceedings back in 2003. I think our community will reluctantly agree now we're all better off because we've been able to become more efficient and have created these partnerships. That being said, we are not an agricultural reservoir for the rest of the world. It's a resource that our community needs and is dependent upon. And we have an expectation that while we're willing to work with other communities and um, states when necessary, they all need to live up to their obligations as well. 
We're talking with Tina Shields, Water Department Manager for Imperial Irrigation District, Michael Cohen, Senior Researcher at the Pacific Institute, and Janet Wilson, Senior Environment Reporter for the Desert Sun. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Let's go to some calls. Mark in Boulder Creek, join us. Hi, Mark. You're on. Good morning. Uh, I have just an idea for a a way of ideally uh, reaching some kind of compromise that would uh, help in California. the first would be to figure out the total loss to evaporation and seepage in California, which I assume is a known quantity. Uh, then to plan to phase in cuts to California over an extended period, maybe 10 years, to reach that amount, uh, but also to allow California to recuperate all of those cuts to the extent that it eliminates losses from evaporation and leakage. For example, by hmm. converting open canals into enclosed pipelines, et cetera. Well, the, yeah. yeah, Mark, that's, that is in many ways what is being proposed and that you're right. They have accounted that there's about one and a half million acre feet of water losses due to evaporation. I just really quickly want to get Tina Shields' reaction to, to what you're proposing. I think it's an interesting idea. I think the challenge we have now is reclamations. Water projections indicate that if the hydrology continues to be at these record low levels, we don't have uh, an amount of time to phase this in. We have maybe two years. Uh, And of course, that's a worst case scenario. Um, Evaporative losses are are tough for California. We feel that those issues were dealt with in the Arizona versus California legislation, and they're part of the system losses. There's a reason they have not been assessed on the states. And there's a reason the six states are choosing to make proposals that push them to the larger water users and the more downstream water users, because that lessens their obligations. Um, So we're not in uh, concurrence, obviously, with those other states as to their proposals And again, the California proposal says we have to honor the existing agreements and compacts. And to the extent that within California, we have to shore up the urban areas. We've always done that in the past, and we will do that in the future. Well, Jesse asks, why has Las Vegas allowed to continually build larger and larger hotels and casinos, knowing good and well that the water supply was not a finite resource? I lived in Vegas for many years and also felt that the placement of civilization was such an unnatural fit. Talk about the impact of Las Vegas or Nevada's water and what it goes for uh, Janet Wilson. Well, yeah, I mean, the farmers, I think uh, Tina would agree, uh, say this uh, early and often, uh, pretty much every day, that the urban areas have sprawled way beyond their natural limits and people plant lawns, you know, in the desert. Uh, and there's golf courses and other things. Um, Las Vegas, interestingly, is in the lead nationwide now in terms of banning, quote, useless grass or any decorative grass that uh, you used to see around, I don't know, maybe Caesar's Palace or some of those other areas. So, and they did get uh, the Nevada state legislature to um, codify that. So that's now being looked at as another potential tool uh, in terms of do we, that, that's what the Arizona water chief uh, said to me last week, maybe we ban grass, you know, do we really need to be wasting just copious amounts of uh, water 
to um, grow uh, green lawns in places that never had them. But the core point about, yes, um, continuing uh, urban development, suburban development um, is a valid one. But on the other hand, we have a higher population and we all need houses. So it is a real tussle, a real um, yeah. you know, war between the urban and the rural areas. Well, Michael Cohen, can you put in context for us how much water Nevada takes from the Colorado River? Yeah, so that, that's a great point. And I, I think uh, an interesting question raised because people go to Vegas and they see the Bellagio fountains. I think, how could you have fountains uh, at a time of such crisis? But Southern Nevada has reduced their water use in the past 20, year, 20 years by a third. So they're using not only uh, much less water than they used to, but well below their normal year entitlement. Uh, and that's because of very aggressive water conservation efforts. So banning uh, non-functional turf, um, banning uh, front lawns in, in uh, new construction, new houses. So I think that uh, we put out a report about uh, water potential in Southern Nevada a number of years ago, and, and they've realized and exceeded that. Hmm. So I think the question gets at a bigger issue, though, which is that many of the cities in the in the Southwest rely on imported water supply. So not just pointing at Las Vegas, but one could look at Los Angeles or San Diego, yes. which import tremendous amounts of their water supply. And working on the Salton Sea years ago, there were questions about uh, why do we allow the Salton Sea to exist? It's artificial coming from uh, people writing from San Diego or LA. And I thought, well, you know, San Diego and LA are, are artificial constructions as well, bringing <laughs> in water from other areas. So there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I think the farmers throughout the, the basin look at uh, grass growing in medians or in front of corporate parks or swimming pools or in some cases even golf courses and think, what's the value of that? Why shouldn't we be growing crops that people eat when people are squandering water on uh, on these aesthetics? Well, let me go to caller Lynn in Walnut Creek. Hi, Lynn, you're on. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I think there's an elephant in the room that no one's talking about and I'd like to hear it discussed a little bit. From my understanding, Cattle uses 34% of all of California's water through feed, cattle, cattle feed like hay and corn and alfalfa. And also each cow drinks about 30 to 50 gallons each a day. People use about 7 to 8% of California's water in their homes and lawns and whatever. Why don't we do a big campaign to get people to stop eating meat and grow plants in their place and maybe even subsidize the farmers while they're transitioning to much, much low water needed agriculture to feed people and have a big campaign like the smoking campaign to get people off of meat, which, you know, seems like an impossibility, but it seems like that's the elephant in the room. Mm, well, just that, then yeah. I think we could really solve the California water problem. Well, and then Lynn, the other question is, what about desalination? Okay, well, Lynn, thanks. Hang on just one second. Another listener writes, I thought I heard that Vegas had agreed to give Los Angeles funding to support a desalination plant in exchange for L.A. ceding some water rights. Seems like a win-win. Did this exchange, in fact, occur? Is desalination and sewage treatment part of the discussion to reduce demand? Do you know about this, Michael Cohen? Yeah, so a lot of interesting questions there to unpack. Um, yeah. so the first, or maybe the last question. Yeah, let's uh, start so, with desalination. Uh, so... Southern Nevada and Arizona are investing in, a, in an initial effort within LA to recycle water. Uh, so to, in this Hyperion uh, wastewater treatment plant, which uh, currently discharges a lot of water into the ocean, the idea is to, to capture that water, treat it to potable standards, 
or near potable standards and recharge it to aquifers for uh, reuse in the LA or in the LA area generally. So that's moving forward. And there's, in fact, that represents a lot of really innovative agreements that have occurred over the past 15, 20 years, uh, where the states have really come together uh, and staved off the current crisis for probably five plus years uh, because of this innovative cooperation. And my hope is that uh, moving forward, we'll continue to see that. Um, in the question of beef, a lot of the feed crops really go to dairy. So uh, getting people to, to eat less dairy uh, might have a real significant impact, but it does raise interesting questions because end of the day, farmers are uh, running a business and they're meeting demand. And there's demand for dairy, there's demand for beef, and uh, they're gonna follow that demand. So uh, I think there are a lot of innovative ideas out there and, and changing some uh, consumption habits could have a real impact, a real benefit uh, for depressing water use in, in mm. the West. In terms of demand, Tina Shield, is that how you might respond to this comment from Jay, who writes, at some point we have to make sensible decisions that are frankly judgmental. The idea of growing thirsty plants such as alfalfa and rice in the desert is simply irresponsible. Alfalfa is further wasteful by its use in feeding cattle, which is crazy. What do you think, Tina Shields? As you can imagine, I have concerns about uh, folks that want to weigh in on farmers' business when they don't really understand uh, the larger implications. As Michael said, farmers grow what the market demands. Uh, they grow alfalfa to not only feed cattle, but to generate those byproducts, which is cheese and milk and ice cream, which are so critical to our uh, consumption habits and, and health and human safety. It's, uh, water in the form of food is very concerning when I see folks that prefer a lawn over a farm that might someday put food on their table or in their refrigerator. And I think we have large food safety concerns in this country that have failed to be addressed. And we just keep targeting agriculture and being unappreciative until we see those grocery store shelves start to empty or the prices start to go up. And I think it's a question that we need to play into this larger mix as well. Mm, Tina Shields is with the Imperial Irrigation District. Michael Cohn is with the Pacific Institute. Janet Wilson with the Desert Sun. You, our listeners, are with us on Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the impact of the shrinking Colorado River on the Imperial Valley and beyond and about the conflict between California and other states over their allocations 
of Water from the Rapidly Shrinking River with Janet Wilson, Senior Environment Reporter for the Desert Sun, Michael Cohen, Senior Researcher for the Pacific Institute, Tina Shields, Water Department Manager for the Imperial Irrigation District. This listener in Riverside writes, how can we eliminate golf courses use of Colorado River water? It is strictly for pleasure for a very privileged and small percentage of our population. In the desert, they use exclusively reclaimed water. Couldn't that be implemented statewide? Steve in Sacramento writes, Southern California and Arizona are both desert lands, yet both continue to allow mega farms growing the ever-thirsty pistachio and almond crops, not to mention all the golf courses in both states and those sprawling palm tree nurseries uh, in California's Imperial Valley. So a lot of people with a lot of different ideas and opinions, views, and reactions. I do want to get into some technical solutions that we touched on earlier. One of the things that I want to ask you about, Michael Cohen, is solar companies that have been long eyeing the Imperial Valley as an ideal site for solar farms. First, why have they been doing that and what kind of inroads have they made? Well, so the sun shines a lot in the Imperial Valley, <laughs> so it's a great source or a great place to, to site your solar. And my understanding is there's on the order of 12,000 acres or more of farmland within Imperial Valley that have been converted to, to solar farms. Um, the, so that's great for renewables. And one thing I haven't, we haven't really talked about as much is uh, climate change, the impacts of carbon emissions on declining Colorado River flows. Mm, yes, so yes. The, the engine that's really driving this current crisis is the amount of carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere. And California has prioritized the shift to renewables. There's a lot of geothermal and the potential for lithium development or, or mining in Imperial Valley as well. So that's uh, another positive aspect. But the challenge with some of these solar farms is, is that they take land out of production. And it's not temporary like fallowing. It's, it's a permanent conversion of land uh, to these solar farms. So the people that used to work on those farms, and again, those agricultural suppliers and others that depended on revenue from those farms, uh, no longer see that revenue. Tina Schultz, um, yeah, sorry. I, I just want to quickly ask Tina, we have seen some farmers convert their land to solar or sell their land for solar. Uh, wondering though, why some resist? What are some of the biggest reasons that people don't want to do that? I think Michael Cohen is touching on them, but I would just be curious if you could characterize how farmers feel about turning their land to solar. So the vast majority of farmers like to farm. It's their livelihood, it's their blood, it's their family, and particularly in our area, it's our community. Um, we have multi-generational family farms in this area, while corporate farms uh, may be more than they used to be and larger in other areas. A lot of our growers live here in this community and they want to ensure that the farming doesn't go away because that will dry up our community. So it's a much larger issue than just profit. It's a matter of what is in the long-term best interest of the families that um, either direct descendants of their predecessors who established these water rights or just our community members that work on our farms or in the businesses related to our farms. Michael Cohen, in terms of workers on the farms, how many are re-employed by these solar farms? So the solar farms uh, hire some people for construction. But once those farms are, once those solar plants are constructed, there's very limited uh, maintenance required. Somebody has to get out there and clean the panes, but that's about it. So most of those jobs, those uh, farm labor jobs are gone. And why are you concerned about a lot of land permanently going out of production, essentially, uh, especially with regard to the impact that it could have on the Salton Sea? 
So a couple points there. Um, one, birds tend to use irrigated farms as well. So when farmers are planting or plowing those fields and you go out there, you see thousands of egrets swarming those fields because there's a lot of insect life. There's a lot of prey out there for those birds to eat. I had a solar field. There's none of that. Those fields essentially, those solar fields are essentially sterilized. Uh, and then again, permanent fallowing means less water flowing to the salt sea. So the salt sea shrinks, salinity increases, there's less habitat, and there's uh, public health impacts arising from more dust coming off a shrinking salt sea. Yeah, talk about those public health impacts. How bad are they and who do they affect? So uh, air quality in the Imperial and Coachella Valleys both uh, is already very poor. And as the salt sea shrinks, again, this land is exposed to more dust blows. And again, it's these vulnerable populations that suffer the most. So uh, childhood asthma hospitalization rates are among the highest in the state in Imperial and Coachella Valleys. So we see kids with nosebleeds, with chronic asthma on their inhalers all the time. Uh, and then the elderly also suffer from that as well. And is this a predominantly low-income Latinx population as well? Right. So there's, I forget the exact percentage, but on the order of 75% plus of communities in Imperial Coachella Valleys are... Uh, Latinx, mm. and disadvantaged, often very poor people with limited health services down there. So again, a disadvantaged community uh, facing the brunt of these additional water reductions. Let me go to caller Jeannie in San Francisco. Hi, Jeannie, you're on. Oh, hi there. Hi, Michael. Um, Jeannie McNaughton here. Um, so I'm just wondering, A, why nobody is mentioning the fact that the river water uh, supply was oversubscribed <laughs> when the compact, the Colorado River Compact was first put together, so there was always less water than was being uh, proposed to be used, A, that's history. Um, then that the products that are being grown, even the alfalfa, but certainly the dairy cows living in these high-temperature um, uh, high conditions are not in the best condition for growing dairy, pro dairy cows. Um, I like to buy my dairy products locally. I think that's an issue we're not talking about either. Uh, cities usually take or do take, I don't have the exact percentage, but the least amount of water. The, we know that agriculture takes 70 plus um, amount of water used in, in Colorado River throughout California. And then that the poor people that Michael is talking about, certainly we want better conditions for them, but they don't have better conditions growing, even though they're in this billion-dollar, quote-unquote, um, agricultural environment, they are not getting the benefits of those uh, things, as you're pointing out. So um, taking yeah. away their water or, or, or taking away water from the Salton Sea, which has ag fertilizers and other chemicals that are not healthy, um, using that as a sort of, oh, don't take water away from the Imperial uh, Valley is a little misleading. That's what I would say. Well, Jeannie, thanks for the points that you raise. And yes, there's actually been some some pretty good reporting around the fact that the allocations were sort of magical thinking to begin with, with regard to what people, what states could reasonably draw from the Colorado River back when those those allocations were made years and years ago, and then and then reaffirmed. But but Michael, I guess I'll just sort of Jeannie did such a nice job summarizing some of the the big things that we are talking about. I guess just because we are running out of time, we have about ten minutes left of the program. I, I do want to get a better sense of okay, given that, given the fact that we have been pulling a lot more than probably we reasonably should have based on what reality 
played out in terms of how much the Colorado River provides. How soon could we hit Deadpool? Do we have any idea? Why is it so hard to predict this? Um, so the, there's two different drivers here. One is how much water are we taking out of the system? But the, the bigger unknown is how much water is going into the system. So the flooding that we saw in California this past month, um, huge snowpacks in the Sierras, which is a huge benefit, which could help reduce California's demand, or at least uh, urban coastal California's demand, which has other water sources uh, on the Colorado River. So that could help. Uh, there's precipitation in the Rockies is slightly above average, but there's a lot of unknowns still uh, about how much of that water is actually going to reach the reservoirs. So historically, uh, even back in 2021, there was about 90% of average uh, precipitation in the Rockies, but only about 33% actually made it to the system. So that creates this huge uncertainty where we don't know how fast it's gonna drop. Reclamation has been doing some modeling, some projections that suggest uh, last year that we could lose power production uh, at Glen Canyon Dam as early as this summer. Hmm. Um, but we've had a, so far, and again, I wanna underline so far, um, decent snowpack in the Rockies, which uh, hopefully will push off that moment of reckoning. Um, but the, the danger is that people get too complacent and don't keep their foot on the accelerator to, to finalize redu these reductions that we all know uh, need to occur to protect the system. Yes, I've been wondering how much these rains have helped. But basically, it sounds like our prediction models are a little bit, you know, off potentially because of, of climate change, because of increasing temperatures, evaporation, drier soils, all those kinds of things? Yeah, exactly right. So there, there's something called runoff efficiency. Uh, and what we've learned recently is how dry the soils are has a huge impact on how much of that snow and rain makes it down to the system. Yeah. And again, in 2021, we saw a huge disconnect between the amount of precipitation and the amount of water that actually made it to the system. Well, Heinrich writes, we need to keep emphasizing that agribusiness uses approximately 80% of our developed water resources. Agriculture receives this public trust resource at far below market rates, effectively a huge subsidy. If agribusiness was paying market rates for water, they would have greater incentive to make more sustainable cropping and water use decisions. Tina Shields, what do you think about this? There have been some farmers who have said that, yes, in fact, they would be willing to pay more for water and think that they do pay too little and that it might be creating incentives that aren't necessarily as helpful as other diversification or other crops could be. Well, one of my pet peeves is this um, attempt to classify water as ag and urban and create this animosity between the classes because farmers grow crops that ultimately end up in a grocery store and are eaten by the urban population. So if you have increased costs with farming, that will again, just drive up your food prices. So it's a net sum game at the end of the day. If you're going to charge more for water, that may make people make different cropping decisions that may limit your choices at the grocery store. It may result in increased costs for the urban consumer as well. Um, so it's all um, connected and it's just a matter of how you view the perspective. And I think it's very critical to understand that the farmers work really hard to meet those demands. We have a great um, agribusiness in this area, but it's controlled in many cases by the decision-making of the consumers. Do you think there is room to pay more for water? That that is actually something that's being considered. People have not rejected that outright in the Imperial Valley. 
I think our growers would support some measures provided that funding would then be available to them to become more efficient. Um, the district as an organization in partnership with some of our water transfer partners has provided um, close to half a billion dollars in the last 20 years to our growers to support their efficiency efforts. Um, some of them may choose to plant different crops. They may or may not be higher water use. They really are planting crops to meet those consumer demands. Again, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Brian in San Francisco. Brian, you're on. Yes, real quickly, why can't we use a market-based solution to price water efficiently on the margin so that people stop pouring potable water on the ground and people pay the appropriate cost for beef? Then we can use the revenues to subsidize the poor in case that was viewed as regressive. Brian, thanks. Michael Cohen, what do you think? Um, well, so there, there are a lot of market incentives, and in some ways uh, what's happening in the Imperial Valley is a result of uh, the amount of money that San Diego paid Imperial, Imperial Irrigation District to conserve and transfer that water. So that's allowed for all this investment in efficiency. Um, so we've seen some of that. We're seeing a lot of investment in urban areas, to, uh, people paying people to take uh, their, their lawns out. We're seeing increased investment in efficiency in, in agricultural areas. Uh, now there's $4 billion, $4 billion uh, appropriated by Congress last year in the Inflation Reduction Act to help farmers and others in the Colorado River Basin become more efficient and, and move some more of that water into storage. So we're seeing some of that, but there's there's challenges associated with uh, market-based pricing because then you got a lot of speculators coming in. And then uh, we've seen in some places that uh, growers, for example, in the Central Valley will uh, extend their pumps deeper because they can grow pistachios or almonds or whatever, and make some money, but those pumps take the water away from local communities uh, which don't have the money or the resource to, to even provide potable water for these communities that are picking the crops. So there's real challenges associated. I'd be, I'm a little skeptical of moving too much towards a pure market incentive uh, for water because ultimately water provides a host of values, only some of which are captured by, by the market. Well, Hendrik also writes, what are Mexican water rights to Colorado River water and what's the amount Mexico actually receives? Uh, Michael, I'll go back to you on that as well. But I'm also curious if you could just remind us, we're talking about farmers, we're talking and, and farm workers, and we're talking about urbanites and suburbanites. But how many people really do rely on the Colorado River that we haven't mentioned yet? Well, so the, the total population served by the Colorado River is, is an interesting question. Uh, in fact, I just put up a blog looking at that because people often talk about 19 million people in California yeah. uh, or that's coastal plain relying on the Colorado River. But Met recently has noted that's only about 12.3. Mm. So we don't actually know exactly how many people rely on, on uh, the river. Uh, we do know that there's on the order of two or three million people within Mexico that get some of their water from the Colorado River, both the Tijuana and the Cali, uh, San Luis Rio, Colorado. So uh, some 1.5 million acre feet by treaty are required uh, for the U.S. to deliver to Mexico every year. But in another pretty interesting success story, uh, in the past five, 10 years, uh, Mexico has worked with the United States to conserve water and, and they're using less than their entitlement as well. They're becoming more efficient. Uh, and again, in an interesting case, uh, investors in the United States, water agencies in the United States are investing in Mexico for them to become more efficient as well, lining some of their canals, for example, allowing them to conserve some of that water and store it in Lake Mead and propping up the elevation of Lake Mead. But one other use that we haven't talked about so much is, is the environment. 
and I'm a little concerned as all this talk, uh, the six states proposal talks about allocating not just evaporation, um, but system losses. And system losses uh, in some ways are trees. And the idea that we're gonna tear out trees uh, so we can keep swimming pools full, uh, full makes me a little uncomfortable. So there, there's some uh, interesting tensions in these arguments about system losses. And are we just gonna convert yeah. the Colorado River into a giant pipeline and use that so efficiently that no bird survives? You mentioned treaties. Also, there are a lot of indigenous groups that have treaties and have rights to Colorado River water, right? Yes. So there's 30 recognized tribes in the Colorado River Basin. Um, not all of those have had their, their water rights fully adjudicated yet. Uh, currently, about I think it's about 3.2 million acre feet of, of Colorado River water uh, are tribal rights or recognized tribal rights. Some of those are used on their reservation so far, growing crops, um, providing water for their populations. Um, some are still being used in uh, off-reservation sites. There's some interesting new developments allowing some of those uh, those tribes to to lease their water for helping Arizona, for example, um, shore up urban demand. Uh, but there's still uh, people in the United States within the Colorado River Basin that have to that don't have reliable potable access to water. They have to go truck their water in from uh, remote areas, which to me continues to be all these years later uh, pretty depressing thought that in the United States, we can't provide potable water to everybody in the basin. Yeah. Well, Janet, we're at the end of the hour. And uh, just really quickly, I'm hearing that the federal government could release a draft of alternatives for the states, the seven states use of water by the end of March. But in the meantime, it sounds like the states are still talking, these seven states, even if they're not agreeing. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. They uh, and uh, key federal officials are still uh, behind closed doors, uh, meeting regularly, having phone calls. Um, the two current sparring agreements came out of talks in Denver and other places. So yes, they are all still working very hard to try and keep the uh, lines of communication open mm. and see if they can arrive at palatable solutions. I, I really agree Ooh. with Mike. Yeah, that. actually, we're just right at the end here. So Janet Wilson, Michael Cohen, Tina Shields, thank you. Thank you, Juan Carlos Lara, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? 
or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.